Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Denise Lajmadir is on a mission. She has been an educator for more than 40 years. She's an expert on boarding school trauma and healing, and North Dakota just named her that state's poet laureate. She is a writer, artist, and jingle dress dancer, raising awareness of her Ojibwe culture and history. Laj Madir is our native in the spotlight, and we'll learn more about her work and listen to some of her poetry this hour. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Another First Nation in Canada is grieving after unmarked graves were found near another former residential school. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, ground-penetrating radar has identified the possible remains of 40 unmarked graves. The former St. Augustine's Residential School operated between 1904 and 1975. Children from more than 50 First Nations attended the school northwest of Vancouver on what is called the Sunshine Coast. The Seashelt First Nation is the latest band to reveal the results of probes into children who had disappeared while attending residential schools. Lenora Joe is the chief of the First Nation. The GPR identifies 40 unmarked children's graves, shallow graves, only large enough for the young bodies to lay in the fetal position. The research also involved interviews with residential school survivors and records of documented historical events. Some researchers say they believe there are many more unmarked graves at the site although much of the area has been disturbed and developed since it lies in the middle of the municipality of Seashelt. Joe says the community is in mourning as members and survivors process news of the discovery. She has asked for privacy for the First Nation to give people time to heal. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission said parents took their children out of St. Augustine's in 1923, protesting against poor education, harsh discipline and a poor diet. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Interior Secretary Deb Holland is releasing more federal money for conservation and wildlife projects, including those helping tribes. Chuck Kornbach of Public Station WUWM reports Holland spoke to a journalist conference Friday in Idaho. Interior Secretary Holland marked Earth Day by telling the Society of Environmental Journalists that she's setting aside $140 million in federal funds for water conservation and efficiency projects. Funding for 84 projects spanning 15 western states will go to irrigation and water districts, states, tribes, and other entities. These projects are expected to conserve over 230,000 acre-feet of water when completed. That's enough to cover 230,000 football fields in a foot of water. Holland also announced $35 million for 39 new fish passage projects on rivers and streams in 22 states. The Interior Secretary says those efforts should help the migration of fish, including salmon. Under questioning from a reporter, Holland also recommitted to the concept of stewardship agreements with tribes for management of public lands. She says ancestral homelands must be protected, regardless of which federal agency essentially owns the land. It still is regarded as an ancestral homeland and as a sacred place for Native Americans. So 
We recognize that, and that's why we feel very strongly about these co-stewardship agreements. Holland says tribes in Idaho, Virginia, and Utah are already providing indigenous knowledge to help manage public lands and waters. Holland and leaders of the Fish and Wildlife Service and Bureau of Land Management also told reporters that several contentious water and wildlife topics are still being studied and discussed. Some announcements may come from the Biden administration before the 2024 election. For National Native News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach. The U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs will hold a virtual listening session to discuss updating the Indian Arts and Crafts Act. Senators will examine amending the act to support creative economies and strengthen enforcement and protections against counterfeit Native art. The session is scheduled for Wednesday. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium, presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. This month, the North Dakota Legislature designated Delise Lajmodier the state's Poet Laureate. She's only the second person to hold that position in 30 years and the first Native American. That is only the beginning of her accomplishments. She's a longtime educator working for more than 40 years as an elementary school teacher, principal, and college instructor. She's one of the founders of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition and has published academic research on the topic. She's also a jingle dress dancer and birch bark biting artist. Today on our show, Denise Lajmodier joins us as a native in the spotlight, where we'll discuss her work and accomplishments. We also want to hear from you. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE or you can leave a comment on our social media pages. Joining us now from the Turtle Mountain Reservation in Wisconsin is Denise Lajmodier. Among other things, she is the Poet Laureate of North Dakota. She's a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. Denise, welcome to Native America Calling. Bonjour, Hanin. Thank you for the invitation. Good to be with you today. Absolutely, and congratulations on being Poet Laureate of North Dakota. Tell us a little bit more about what does that mean to be a Poet Laureate of a state like North Dakota? Well, I think we mostly, I will mostly be promoting the reading, writing, and uh, the appreciation of, of poetry. Just uh, sharing my pure joy of reading and writing poetry. So we're still working out exactly what my duties will be. Uh, it's, of course, it's always an honor. It's uh, very much an honor to represent my tribe and, of course, North Dakota. 
But the, the previous poet laureate, Dr. Larry Wywoody, was also my mentor. And he was in the position in perpetuity until he passed away uh, uh, last year. So um, it was kind of new for the state legislature and it's new for the North Dakota Council of the Arts and myself exactly what, what my duties will be. So we're still working that out, but I hope to you know visit schools, uh, do poetry workshops and um, just spread the word of, of poetry. Now, when were you selected as Poet Laureate? I got the news, uh, let's see, about the second week in April. So just a, a short while ago, I was at a writing retreat in Homer, Alaska, which is three hours behind us here in, in Central Time. <clears throat> so I woke up to um, text messages and phone messages and congratulations. So it was a long process. It was a three month process to we we go through the state legislature here in North Dakota. So it was it was uh, a bit nerve wracking, but <laughs> made it through. <laughs> It sounds just super exciting. And I know there have only been four poet laureates in the state. And of course, as you mentioned, you succeeded your mentor who had been in that position since 1995. So almost 30 years. And now you're in this role. And I mean, just talk a little bit more, Denise, about the significance of what this means. And especially you as a Native writer, the first Native American writer to become poet laureate of the state of North Dakota. Yeah, like I said, it's it's uh, quite an honor. I think for me, it's so important because growing up, you know, I, I grew up, I loved poetry. I published my first poem when I was uh, 10 years old in fifth grade. <clears throat> my teacher put it in, in a, a display case and, and as people would come into the elementary school. So that was pretty cool. <clears throat> but uh, as I went through high school and even my first couple of years of college, I had no native mentors. There were, I didn't see any native authors even this is back in you know I'm older so it's back in the 60s when I was in high school and 70s and my early years in college so I didn't see any native writers uh and in I was out in Portland Oregon we had re relocated there for about 14 years so none of my teachers knew or could show me any examples or or um, mentors of, of native writers and authors and poets so I actually quit writing for a while because you know, I was very, very, very shy and had very low self-esteem. And I figured in my mind that, well, Native people just don't write. So who do I think I am to think I could keep writing poetry? So I, I hope to be a mentor to, especially to young Native uh, poets in junior high, high school, elementary school, that they can write and that they can be published. And that's Part of my goal as a North Dakota Poet Laureate is to work with Native students on, on the four reservations. I hope I'm able to do that and maybe come up with an anthology. <laughs> Denise, this is so fascinating and an inspiring story that you're sharing now. And it, I'm perplexed because you describe as a young person thinking, well, it's not my place to write. I don't know any Native writers. Uh, you didn't feel like it was really your role. But what changed in your life? When did you suddenly realize that, no, this was your calling, that you were meant to be a writer? I think as a poet, you can't not write. So I was always scribbling notes, always uh, writing poetry. I, I had a big chief tablet, and I still have, have some poems that I wrote there, but I didn't know how to write poetry. I didn't, I didn't know forms and styles and so on, but I had to keep writing things down. 
So one year, it was 1984, when I picked up a book. And not only was this book by a native female writer, but she was from my reservation. And that was Love Medicine by Louise Erdrich. And I can't tell you the impact that that book had. And she was also a poet. So I started writing uh, seriously then. Uh, but um, she was the she was the impetus that that helped me or the, the encouragement enough that I needed that. Wow, you know, we we can write and and female and native and people from the Turtle Mountain can write. And that's where I was from, native female from Turtle Mountain. So she absolutely became a, a role model for me. 1984, Louise, so we're going back almost 40 years now. Well, Denise, tell us a little bit more about your style of poetry and, and just how you approach the craft. Yeah, I, I, I mostly write what's called narrative poems, and my poems tell a story. Uh, um, I also write from a lot of trauma. My first book, especially Dragonfly Dance, is just, uh, I just write about being Native, uh, being an urban Indian, uh, having uh, the relocation, uh, what it did to me and my family, and then coming back to the res uh, since the 1970s. So I've been home for more than 50 years. There's no place else I wanted to be but home. So I, it was very healing for me to write poetry and about some of the trauma growing up. You know, you mentioned my folks uh, being boarding school and so are my grandfathers. So I understand through my research more about why I was parented the way I was. And then about the, the federal programs such as uh, the boarding school era, the termination era, which our tribe was almost terminated. And then um, relocation era, all of that to try to get us assimilated into the white culture. Uh, so my journey in a lot of my poems is a, a journey about finding out who I was as a native person. Uh, and I did that through uh, moving back home, of course, uh, to start my my um, junior and senior year at uh, University of North Dakota and learning more about my culture, the ceremonies, the customs, traditions, the songs. I, I learned to dance. I taught myself how to do beadwork. So a lot of my poems have to do with that journey on learning who I was, as, uh, who I am as a Native person. Denise, this is... Um... Really interesting. I'm really excited uh, to have you on the show today and, and, and learning more about your role. And I know you are prepared to to read some poems today. And um, if I could, if I could ask you to read one, because uh, we have about a, three minutes before break. So maybe um, His Feathers Were Chains, if you feel comfortable reading that one, or Spring Comes Slow to North Country, which one would you prefer to read first? I'll read about the spring, because that's what we're trying desperately, we're waiting for. Okay, <laughs> all right. Let's hear it. Hasn't it hasn't hit here in North Dakota yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Denise Lajmodier, please read for us. Thank you. This is Spring Comes Slow to North Country. The prairie chicken dances the sun toward its northernmost summer home, a slow dance. Pale April light filtered through bare birch limbs offers little heat. The bleak wind brittle as mica. The ice-locked lake begins to moan, a low rumbling, the sound of thunder coming. Ice vibrates like a drumhead, sings so loud it wakes me up. Spring comes slow to North Country. Ice rain stings our faces. Winter-weary bodies crave a sun's warmth. First thunder wakes the sleeping earth. Sap begins to flow, calls the snakes. Loons wail. Geese returned. 
how I mourned their leaving seven months ago. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for reading that, Denise. Uh, seven months ago. So what you're describing is a really long winter up in North Dakota. What's the weather up like up there like now? Is it is it close to spring? Is it is it warming up at all? Yeah. Well, I've been I've been in Homer, Alaska since the first of April, and now I'm in uh, Minnesota by St. Cloud at another's writers retreat. I'm spending the month writing. But here it snowed a couple inches the other day, and I think it also stormed in in North Dakota too. And I live on the on the on a lake, and uh, that's how I describe it. When the when the ice is starting to break up, it it makes a lot of noise. It's pretty cool. Uh, so I'm hoping when I go home in a week that that maybe um, the ice will be gone and it'll be warmer. I don't know yet. It's still it's been it's been a slow spring. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like and. Um... You know this. It, the poem so vividly describes the winter conditions and the thawing ice, but I, I get the sense that there's a lot more to this message here. And spring comes slow to North Country, and uh, we'll have Denise talk about that uh, after this short break that we do have to take. But anybody who would like to ask Denise a question, if you are a fan of her work, or perhaps if you are up in North Dakota and you're interested in learning more about uh, her role, her new role as the Poet Laureate for that state. Our phone lines are open right now. Just give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number to call to share your comments on the air or ask a question, 1-800-996-2848. More with Denise Lajmodier after this break. talk with Oblala Lakota chef Sean Sherman, who continues to rack up accolades while advancing native food sovereignty. We'll also hear about what it's like for a native chef going head-to-head -head against celebrity personality Bobby Flay, and a new program to feed native elders. That's coming up on the menu on Native America Calling. Bonjour. Onishishin by Yawa of Anujiag, Ugwajing, Hanisi Gwang. Anuidashayapi, Bangashinug, Dakwamawag, Gema, we Sugashinug. Nandagakandan, Dawajge, Ishichigayan, insurekidsnow.gov. Gaundinagadeg, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with poet, author, and educator Denise Lajamodir. Please feel free to join this conversation. The number to call to ask a question or share a comment, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Denise, before break, you read for us uh, the first poem you're going to read today, Spring Comes Slow to North Country. And uh, I'm always curious uh, when I talk to writers, like, What's your routine? I mean, do you write every day? And if so, for how long? And do you have a, a special area in your home where you write? Or how do you approach just the day-to-day -day, uh, tasks of, of what it means to, to write poetry? Well, for the past couple of years, I've been working on a, a middle grade novel. 
and it's based on loosely based on my father's experiences as a boy in 1925 to 1930 at Chimawa, Oregon. So that's very different for me than writing my poetry. Uh, I can write, I've, I've written a 700 word uh, children's book, Josie Dances, and then of course my poems are about the length of, of what I just read. So to write a middle grade novel, almost 30,000 words was very, very different. Uh, so I found my writing routine has changed. Uh, I, I do like to write when I'm propped up in bed in the mornings with a cup of coffee. So I, I do my best writing for some reason while, while I'm sitting up in bed. Uh, but with my middle grade novel, I, I needed to write whenever the spirit hit. So I could be in my chair overlooking that lake <laughs> that I'm talking about, uh, and which was uh, you know, pretty snowy and, and frozen for seven months of the year. <laughs> um, so um, now I started something new. I um, have a book that talks about, it's called Method Writing. And he wants us, he encourages writers to write two pages every day. So if you can imagine just doing that by the end of a year, I'd have over 700 pages written. So I, I started doing that. And that's uh, probably more uh, rigorous than I, I've ever done. I usually just write whenever I feel like writing. Uh, mostly it seems mornings and even late at night. But I started doing that and I now have six pages. So I tried it for the last three days. But I want to be more disciplined in my writing. And right now I have a book called Recording Your Family History. So I'm going to record myself in writing uh, on, on this journal, at least two pages every day. Uh, it has a lot of suggestions how, how to uh, like interview somebody about their family history. So I'm going to be interviewing myself and writing a minimum of two pages every day, hopefully for the next year. And if some poems come out of that, super. I, I'm sure that I'm sure there will. It's kicking loose a lot of memories, so I'm going to have fun with this. So, for the first time in my writing career, I'm going to be very disciplined. I've heard of people saying you have to write, or they they want themselves to write 1,000 words every day, and so on. I've I've never done that. I write just whenever the spirit moves me. Mm -hmm. Denise, do you do all of your writing on a laptop or some sort of electronic device, or do you ever write by hand? When I first started writing, when I took, a, I went over, when I was working on my doctorate at UND in 2005, I walked over to the English department uh, to Larry Y. Woody and asked him if I could join his, uh, his workshop, writing workshops, which I didn't even know what that was, but I knew I just, as long as I'm at college, using the one side of my brain on this academic work, I wanted to work on learning more about poetry. And he let me in, master's level. But that time I had enough time to sit down with a pencil because I love the way a pencil sounds on paper. Mm -hmm. And But once I graduated and started working full-time as a professor at NDSU, I didn't have time to just take my time writing slow on, on paper by ha uh, handwriting, which I love. So now I throw everything onto the computer and then it's easier to cut and paste and move around and print it out and so on. So now everything goes onto my computer. Denise, we've got a caller on the line right now. Carl, who is listening on the KNBA live stream, excuse me, live stream. He is in Washington State. Hello, Carl. Yeah, well, Carl, this is Carl Wesley. I'm uh, from, from Alaska. Um, I, I just wanted to to say thank you, uh, Denise uh, Kuyana, uh, in in our language. I just wanted to uh, 
I, I really appreciate the spring come slow to North Country. I, I I went to school at University of Mary in Bismarck for for a short time, all and I, so I understand the very whiteness of the school and being some of the only native there. Um, but but I uh, ended up graduating from college. college. Anyway, long story short, uh, uh, I really uh, appreciate your story. So and your your I'm looking forward to to all your, your reading all your books and, and, and thanks for sharing your poetry with us this morning. Uh, it's, it's, it, uh, it, I could, I could, I could visualize, uh, the, the, the slow spring coming in the North country here on Turtle Island. Carl, thank you for calling in and Denise, please feel free to respond to Carl's warm words. I, I love my home. I live you know, almost on the Canadian border, but doggone it, it's cold and snow <laughs> lasts a long time. And uh, but uh, just can't wait for spring and the flowers and the ducks and the birds to come back home and, and that lake to unthaw and, and go swimming again. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it won't be too much longer. Denise, tell us more about some of the symbolism there in spring comes slow to North Country, um, because there's more to it than just the thaw. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I had heard a story from um, an elder on the reservation that, that said that it's the prairie chicken that brings the sun, that moves the sun. And I face west, my, my window to my little cozy cottage faces west over the lake, and I can see when the sun goes way, way south, you know, in, in the winter and offers very little heat. And then it's like one step at a time, that little prairie chicken is is pulling that sun back towards summer and the sun goes way to the north. So it's pretty cool where I live to to see that change in the seasons. So I just want that little prairie chicken to just move a little faster right now. So can warm up. <laughs> Come on, little prairie chicken. Keep going, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Denise, um, Let's hear another one of your poems. I know you've got three others, so we've got plenty of time. Take your pick. Which one you want to read next? Okay, this is the title of, of my latest book, um, His Feathers Were Changed, which was published by North Dakota State University. And this was uh, something I saw when I was on my way to Pine Ridge one day, uh, and it was in a town called Myrtle, South Dakota. His Feathers Were Changed. At a small town in South Dakota, I stopped to rest and saw an Indian on a horse welded together using farm implements and planted on the lawn next to the Sioux Motel. His war bonnet was a sickle bar, his shield a disc blade, his feathers were chains. A splicer connector formed his mouth into a permanent oval. His horse's body was a barrel, a harrow for a tail, his hoofs support brackets. I found him there and heard a war cry from his mouth like howls in my chest. Is one a warrior only when revelry is heard? Forgive me, friends, but he was there at Wounded Knee, Little Bighorn, Washita, Sand Creek, Whitestone Hill, and has a harrowing tale to tell. Staked to this earth, his feathers were chains, his blood a rusty red. Mm, his blood a rusty red. So Murdo, South Dakota, right there in I-90, hometown of uh, John Thune. Uh, one of the senators there in, in South Dakota. Again, a couple years ago, and, and this uh, apparition, is, it actually got uh, ran into or, or run over by a car, so it no longer exists. But uh, I actually took, I took a picture and I brought it to a farmer because it was all farm implements. And that's how 
I learned about, you know, the harrow and the, um, you know, the, the disc blade and so on. So I actually had to do a little research in order to write that poem. <laughs> His feathers were chains. Wow. Denise, so you got your, um, you went to grad school up at, up in University of North Dakota. Um, so you were there on the Grand Forks campus then? Is that where you were at? Yeah, I got all of my degrees there in 77, my bachelor's in teaching. And then in 1996, my master's in educational leadership and went on to become a principal on, on the reservation. And then uh, 2006, I got my doctorate in ed leadership. And that's when I started teaching as a professor at North Dakota State University. So yeah, I didn't go very far from home. I think because we relocated to Portland and we would come back and visit uh, in the summers, I always wanted to stay I always want to stay in Belcourt. Uh, I want to stay with my cousins and my grandparents. But my parents, I think because they were boarding school and separated from their parents, wouldn't let me stay. So, you know, a lot of people, when they get their degrees, they'll go to different universities. I I just, I wanted to stick close to home. <laughs> and I, I'm, <laughs> I am. So I didn't go to a whole bunch of different universities. I, I, stayed, um, I stayed in Grand Forks because it was uh, only three hours from, from my home. Now, University of North Dakota got a lot of national attention a few years ago with regard to its mascot. It had the Fighting Sioux mascot, and I know that has since been changed, but you were there during uh, that entire discussion, and how were you impacted by that issue there on campus with, with the old mascot? Yeah, it was it was pretty awful for those of us that were students, and people said, well, why did you go there? I said, well, it's, it was a, a good academic education that I received, but it had a, a really poor um, sports mascot. So I was very much an, uh, an activist along with many other students and professors on, on campus to try to get it removed for, I mean, people were boycotting that from 1968. And I was there in, uh, I started going to school there in 72. So I spent all those years marching, demonstrating on the corners, uh, getting yelled at horrible things, getting cursed at horrible things, getting told, go back to the reservation, go drink your fire water, getting flipped a bird. Um, it was uncomfortable in classes when professors would bring up about the Fighting Sioux logo and I'd be the only native student in the class. And I just wanted to get my education. Uh, so, it, you know, usually having to defend or try to explain why we want to change. A horrible amount of racism on campus at the time. It was, it was not... Uh, it was not an easy time to to be there at, at UND uh, until I followed, uh -huh. changed the logo. Well, you know, I followed that that story pretty closely, and I, it just seemed like that was one of the, the universities that fought the hardest. And, and as you describe it, I mean, it, they were just so dead set on just never changing it. And I was honestly, I was really surprised when it was finally changed. It was great, but I was surprised because I know how hard they fought against that. And did you include any of those experiences or, or that issue in any of your writings or poems, Denise? You know, I do. <clears throat> I do have a, a Sestina that I call the Fighting Sioux, but I, I've not published it. It's um, it's it's got a lot of anger in it. <laughs> so <laughs> I've never found a venue to where to where I guess I've been brave enough to publish it. But yeah, I do have uh, what's called a sestina about the fighting Sioux. Well, so much of your writing and your other work is also um, geared around uh, boarding schools and, and raising awareness about what we all know as Native American boarding schools. And when did that issue become so central to what you talk about and what you write about? 
my listen to my father tell um, talk about boarding school when we lived in Portland when we would drive by Salem would point out Chamawa, but of course I was in high school. I didn't pay much attention to it. It wasn't until just before he passed away in, in 1993, when he was 77, that I sat down and actually tape recorded him. And I had heard mama talk about going to uh, Stevan about how she didn't speak any English and how the nuns locked her in the closet. And she said, I didn't care. I liked it in the closet, but then she would pee her pants. They wouldn't let her out. And then they would beat her for having Peter Pants while she's in the closet. So I interviewed my father then, and then I got involved in the boarding school healing project. And then we started the National Boarding School Healing Coalition in 2011. And uh, someone mentioned, we need a book written. So I just uh, um, decided that while I was a professor, you know, you need to publish a parish. And I thought, well, I'm gonna make it my, my research agenda to write a book about boarding schools. And so I decided to do a qualitative interview study on, on boarding schools. So that was, um, that was, it took about 10 years to write the book and, and get it published. Uh, it was, uh, again, it was a pretty rough experience. Um, a lot of um, secondary trauma, but I told the people that I interviewed and published in the book, they said, tell the world what happened to us. And so no matter how hard it is on me um, emotionally and so on, uh, it's nothing compared to what the boarding school survivors went through. So I will continue telling their stories as long as I have a voice. And with that said, Denise, I know you wrote a story about your father's experiences there at Chamawa, uh, a poem. It's titled Bitter Tears. Can you read that for us? Yes, I will. Thank you. <clears throat> Bitter Tears. The school's maintenance man drives me to the cemetery, unlocks the saving gate under a wrought iron arch, stark letters. Chamawa Cemetery, 1886. Ancient fir trees tower above the graves. Weeds and wildflowers cover up the small flat plaques. Offering tobacco prayers, I gently sweep aside the weeds to read the names and years they died. What did they die of? Loneliness? Worked to death in the barn and fields? Pneumonia? A beating from the gauntlet? Suicide on the tracks in front of the school? I count 21 plaques in a row with the date 1918, the year of the flu epidemic. I find plaques stamped with the years my father was a student here. Did he know this boy, that one? Were they friends? As a carpenter apprentice, did he hammer together the casket they were buried in? Was there a funeral? How were their parents told? Sap seeps down a fir tree's trunk like bitter tears, its roots tugging at a plaque holding a lone child in embrace. I brace against the tree and weep for the children, for the parents left behind, for my father who lived, for those who didn't. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to the, your news at the top about another uh, graveyard, um, boarding school graveyard with uh, unmarked graves. And I just, it just makes me weep. It's, um, right. it's, it's hard to have healing, boarding school healing when uh, we keep finding these unmarked graves. Absolutely. Denise, what's the reaction when you do these readings uh, in Native communities? Like, for instance, Bitter Tears uh, listeners, how do they usually react? What do they say after hearing a, a poem like this? They often tell their own stories. Like this morning, I was visiting with a class at UND uh, about their, and out of the six students, there was three of them that were Native students. And I asked them, 
about their reaction to just what you said, because I read, um, was talked to them about uh, about my book, Stringing Rosaries. And although it was usually their young students, so it's usually their grandfathers and grandmothers that went to boarding schools. And when they tell the stories that they've heard, they just weep. So there's still what's called intergenerational trauma. We're in historical trauma. We're in unresolved grieving. Um, so many boarding school survivors haven't told their stories. One student said that her grandfather absolutely refuses to talk about what happened to him at Peer Indian Learning Center uh, in, in South Dakota. And I told her, my experience has been that when men won't talk about their boarding school experiences, they were most likely molested, either by, um, well, the women, the nuns, uh, the people that worked in the dorms, or um, priests, and even older boys. But the saddest thing I heard was when uh, older boys were molested and then they in turn became perpetrators. Mm. Denise, I know you're also a founder of the National Boarding School Healing Coalition. We do have to take a short break, but when we come back, uh, I want to ask you about that and uh, what the purpose of the coalition is and some of the work you do. So uh, we'll be right back. Please stay with us, folks. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. You're listening to Native America Calling. Still time to join our conversation with Denise Lajamodir. If you have a comment or question, please give us a call. Phone lines are open right now, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Denise, the Native Boarding School Healing Coalition, tell us more about it. And just how has awareness changed about boarding schools for the general public over, over the last couple of decades? Yes, it started at an organizational meeting held by the Native American Rights Fund in Boulder, Colorado in 2011. Uh, we had, uh, they had gathered, called together anybody that was working, any organizations working with uh, boarding schools. And then we formed the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, or NAB for short. And of course, healing was in, uh, is in the title. So our main goals at that time and, and was to uh, bring awareness of boarding schools to national level and to work through Congress, to have them organize a commission to go throughout the United States and, and take boarding school survivors' testimonies and talk about what healing means. Well, that was 2011. It wasn't until, and they worked until two years ago when the news of Cam Loops hit national and uh, international news about uh, the, the news of the unmarked graves there. So our relatives across the medicine line was telling news organizations, well, you better look to the South, to our neighbors in the U.S., because the same thing happened there. So NABS was in place, and then the Secretary Deb Holland was in place at the Department of Interior, and then my book, uh, Stringing Rosaries. So I started getting calls uh, from like Al Jazeera, from China, New Zealand, Australia, from, from all over, um, ABC Nightline, CNN, and, and doing... Uh, probably over 50 interviews in the last two years. So, and then of course, uh, NABS also got a um, tremendous amount of attention. Finally, 
finally, after working for over a decade, it took what happened in Kamloops to bring uh, national attention to what the work was being done by NABS. I was a former uh, president and then uh, board member, but I'm off the board, but I'm in, in touch with them and the incredible, remarkable work they are now doing. Uh, with, with they're working in conjunction and cooperation with uh, with Deb Holland. So now there is actually an act going through Congress as we speak. The oh, what's the name of it? The boarding school, um, um, well, a truth and truth and healing commission. There's going to be a commission formed if it passes through whatever it needs to do it in through Congress. And hopefully funding will be available for just what we had wanted to do 10, 11 years ago to send a commission throughout the United States. Uh, and the commission would be made up of uh, boarding school survivors and intergenerational, such as myself, uh, that didn't go to boarding school but suffer from the effects of my parents having attended boarding school. And mostly look at what healing would, would look like. Um, and hopefully monies would, would flow into communities and, and um, so on to work with, with healing programs specific to boarding school healing. So it was a long journey, but it took uh, the finding of, of what happened at Kamloops and what you just mentioned at the top of the hour with finding more unmarked graves. So Secretary Deb Holland had researchers look for, I, you know, I developed a list of boarding schools along with NABS and other researchers. And so she has, they have another a list that hasn't been made public yet, but she also said that there's 54 or maybe more uh, uh, grave sites that she knows at, uh, at boarding schools. And like Chamawa, where I just read about the, the cemetery, they also have unmarked graves there. At Fort Taunton, we are going to be doing um, ground penetrating uh, radar at Fort Taunton for elders pointing out to where they believe they, well, they said they saw uh, kids being buried. Uh, there, so that will probably happen sometime this spring. So, yeah, are there unmarked graves in in the United States? Absolutely. So it's it's going to be tough as those start being made public. She didn't want to make them public because she doesn't want people, you know, going and gawking or whatever at at these grave sites. So I don't know the the entire list of of schools that have graveyards. I didn't look for that as part of my research and writing the book, I never thought to ask or look for schools or look for information or in the historical records if they had a cemetery or not. But it appears quite a few schools do have uh, cemeteries. Denise, you have one more poem to read for us today. And uh, it's about your mom's experience at boarding school. Can you read it for us? Yeah, this is a longer poem. It's called At Boarding School. At boarding school, mom learned to knit I'd hold a skein of yarn in my arms, sway back and forth while she wrapped it into a ball. At boarding school, mom learned to embroider. Kitchen towels held names, one for each day of the week I used when washing and drying dishes each night. At boarding school, mom learned to darn socks. On quiet winter nights, sitting by a lamp, head bowed over a light bulb with my white cotton sock stretched over it, carefully weaving frayed edges together. <clears throat> At boarding school, mom learned to wash clothes, worked in the school's laundry, blueing the whites, ran clothes through the mangle, careful not to catch an arm, hang on clotheslines. At boarding school, mom learned to sew, made all my clothes, even when I complained that kids made fun of me, my homemade skirts, dresses, pants, and darned socks, saying we were poor. She sewed aprons, over-the-head bibs, wrap-around waist, everyday calico ones, gauzy frou-frou ones for holidays, starch stiff with 
clear pockets, fancy hanky tucked in, wide ribbons to make a bow. At boarding school, mom learned to clean, detailed to bathroom toilets with a toothbrush, washed walls, scrubbed floors on hands and knees, scraped dirt from corners with butter knife. At boarding school, mom learned to cook, and every day at home, donned an apron and baked and cooked and baked and cooked. On holidays, she wore the fancy sheer frou-frou apron with wide starched ribbons, hanky tucked in a pocket, embroidered with exquisite lace, hands aching stiff from arthritis, had me tie a pretty bow. At boarding school, girls were taught to be domestic servants, trained to be housewives. They didn't have a choice. Nuns stood stern with rulers in hand. My mother mastered the art of housekeeping. Mom taught me how to knit and darn and embroider and wash and hang clothes, sew aprons, iron, wash walls, scrub floors, scrape corners. Exhausted, I refused to learn to cook. The ghost of Richard Pratt whispered in her ear, and she told me I would never find a husband. How Mingwich. I really like that one, Denise. I mean, I like them all, but that one especially just really resonates with me. Uh, really powerful, powerful. Denise, I also want to talk to you, uh, you know, about your career in education and, and serving as a teacher and an administrator. What led you down that path? Well, I said, you know, I mentioned we'd go home in in the summers, and I ran into a lot of horrible racism growing up, especially in in Catholic schools. You know, being called squad, having my Rage jerked around, um, being beat up because I was Indian, woo, 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 you know, savage and so on. When I go home, I'd see kids that look like me, uh, my cousins and so on, and I would just plead to be be home. Uh, so I went through the school system. I eventually got put into a uh, public school system. And I decided then and there, and then I, you know, I went through uh, my freshman, sophomore year at Portland State University. And this was in the early 70s. So there was the American Indian Movement got started in the urban area in Portland. And I jumped in and got totally involved with it. I became what they call a militant Indian. You know, I was marching and demonstrating for fishing rights. And uh, you know, I wore feather in my hair and beads and I learned how to make moccasins, taught myself how to do beadwork, um, trying to undo everything that I'd lost through my parents being boarding schooled and, and just that pride at being, uh, being native. Uh, so I knew then that I wanted to go home and teach on the reservation and make sure that Students there were proud of who they were as Native people. So that's what I did. So I, as soon as I could, I joined a Northern Plains Indian Teacher Corps there at UND in 1972 or three. I packed up a bag, got on the train, and never looked back. And I've never lived back in, in the Northwest. I have cousins there. I'll go visit, and I miss the ocean. But uh, my goal was to become a teacher and work on the reservation, and that's exactly what I did. And eventually uh, becoming a principal also at the, at the elementary school there. But mostly it was so that I would be able to teach um, pride in being who, who you were as, as a native person. Stuff that was taken away from me uh, growing up and away from my parents because of boarding schools. And how do you approach uh, the craft of writing with students? What do you tell them and how do you inspire them to write? Yeah, I I and others started uh, five uh, for five years for five summers. We uh, pulled together twenty five students from middle school and high school, and we had them do all kinds of things. We had we brought in uh, native artists, other native writers, um, uh, people that were that would write um, 
I can't remember the name of the type of, it looks like um, a cartoon type of book. Can't remember the name, um, name of that. But anyway, we brought in a lot of people, native people so that kids could see that native people did these things. They did, they did art and they, they, they did all kinds of different types of writing. And then I would teach poetry and I bring in a young native poet, maybe a national poets uh, uh, winner and so on. And uh, just let them let them write. So many, so many of the teachers in elementary school, they, they do iambic pentameter end rhyme and that's the only thing they would teach. And then they'd have the kids uh, you know, analyze the poems and I, I, I don't do that. I encourage them to write free verse. Um, so I ha would have poem starters or story starters and um, just have them write. And then we talked about revise, revise, revise. I uh, let them know ahead of time that um, very few of us write a poem and that's it. Just just <laughs> once, you know, some of my poems have I've gone through so many revisions. They're not even recognizable from how I started out. So I let them know that they need to revise. Um, and then I we've put the poems together in an anthology uh, called Heart of the Turtle. And uh, it's ready to be published right now. Once I get back home, I'll make copies of it and send them out to the students who are part of the anthology. But it just encouraged them to free write and uh, maybe give some story starters for them. And uh, turned out just beautifully. I, I loved every minute of working with the students. Now, in addition to uh, your work in education, teaching, uh, being an administrator, you also are an artist. And um, you do some really cool stuff with uh, with birch bark. Tell us about it. Yes, I do an old uh, pre pre contact art called birch bark biting. I had gone to do a poetry reading at the Idle Jorg uh, uh, Museum, and there was a gal there named Kelly Church, and she had this little dragonfly on a piece of birch bark, and she, I have, what is that? Because I love dragonflies. So she talked to me about it and, and she sent me information on how to how to do it. And she became a mentor and it was just incredible. And, and I just happened to have the eye teeth that are able to be sharp enough to be able to do birch bark biting. So I, I won a grant from the Minnesota Historical Society and I was able to travel to Washington DC and up to Canada to look at old older pieces of birch bark biting. And I then, I, I passed for about four years before I started selling uh, my work. And um, so I, I brought, and it was done on our tribe and I didn't know it, but uh, there was elders that had done birch bark biting in the Turtle Mountains. So I was able to bring it back uh, at home as an art. I do all kinds of workshops because Kelly was so, so giving and sharing with, with information on how to, to do, do the birch bark biting. I, in turn, show anybody that wants to know, and I, I do a lot of workshops on, on birch bark biting. I absolutely love it. The, the ceremony of, of gathering the bark from the trees and then um, sitting on my deck on hot summer days and peacefully peeling it, it's very healing again. You have to be in a good way um, to, to do the work, and you have to be in a good way to do the biting. You can't be angry or tearful or sad, you know, you just have to be in a good way. So it's, um, it's been very healing for me to, to do the work and to, to share it with whoever wants to, uh, wants to learn how to do brush rock biting. Now, Denise, in addition, in addition to this artwork, uh, you are also into powwows. I know you're a jingle dress dancer and with uh, spring coming to, to North country here in the next few months, are you ready for powwow season? Oh, yes. Oh yeah, yep. Again, that was a big part of my healing when 
When I was in Portland, I went to my first powwow, and I have a poem about that also here somewhere, but it, it just did something to me, that drum, and seeing the dancers out there and dancing in the circle and the beauty of their regalia. I want to do that, and that was, and I did. I taught myself beadwork and, and how to make moccasins, and when I moved back home, learned how to, to make, I had, first I danced uh, Fancy shawl when I was younger, and then I moved into women's traditional, and then in 1984 I moved into jingle. But it, I feel such healing and such beauty every time I enter that arena. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that at my age I, I feel healthy enough to dance uh, and powwow. But yeah, absolutely ready to to hit the summer powwow circuit. <laughs> what are your favorite powwows? Well, I just came from Denver March. That's absolutely a favorite. Uh, I lived in in Denver when the Apollo first got started, um, what, 47 years ago or so. And then um, also uh, Bismarck is, is one of my favorite, plus our tribal powwow, a couple of them in, in uh, August and in uh, Labor Day. Denver March, 47 years ago. This is just so cool, Denise. And, and describing, you know, earlier you talked about, you know, um, being involved in, in some militant uh, activism back in the early 70s. So you were there, I mean, right during, you know, that time uh, in contemporary Native history when there was just so much going on. And, and now here it is, uh, you know, we read these stories and of course, you know, some of these anniversaries, wounded knee occupation and things like that. What do you tell young people today about, what was it like? I mean, what do you tell when you talk to young people, college students, high school kids about growing up in the early 70s? Well, it was a pretty remarkable time. You know, I was on campus. So besides the American Indian Movement, there was a Black Power Movement. There was a Chicano Power Movement. There was gay liberation. There was uh, there was uh, women's liberation. And there was anti-war, you know, anti-Tricky Nixon. And, and I, I was a hippie. I was even living in a commune. So I just say, get involved. You know, just, just get involved and, and do the right thing. But, uh, but stay involved in, in, in especially in politics and, and vote. So um, yeah, the, the, the next time I saw such activism was being involved in the No Dapple movement in, um, in Cannonball. I mentioned my great grandmother, she's buried there in Cannonball. She was a medicine woman there in Cannonball and her heart was broken when they first flooded the river where she would gather her medicines. So I was there, I was working with a couple of other poets, Natalie Diaz and Jennifer Forrester. We were working in the, in the school, the little school there teaching poetry. And I went up to where my grandmother's buried there in great grandmother in, in uh, Cannonball. And I just, I was just weeping again, just crying saying, these cookums, you know, we're still working. We're still trying to protect the water. So that I saw that activism there was just, again, extraordinary. And it reminded me of the 70s when we were so involved in, in uh, all the movements. That Depression touches nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers as a counselor with culturally relevant training. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. This Mother's Day, you can give all the mothers in your life truly unique gifts from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium.
the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.